HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Severin, and this is Greenhorns Radio for the New Year. Radio for young farmers, by young farmers, sharing stories of inspiration and struggle between places and people. Thank you to the telephone. Thank you to the Heritage Radio. Thank you to you all. I'm talking today to Rich Lee, who is a co-owner of Tender Souls Farm, Tender Souls in Dresden, Maine. Hi, Rich. Hey, Severin. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty good. I heard it's cold there. Uh, yeah, it got down to negative one or two last night. So, yeah, got the got the wood stove nice and hot last night before we went to bed. So you were staying snuggled up by the stove and and enjoying the warmth of the manure pack. What what are you up to there? Tell us about your operation and the landscape around you. Um, well, um, currently my fiance Kate and I are um, leasing a 28-acre farm in uh, Dresden, Maine, which is um, on the Eastern River. It's uh, about half an hour south of Augusta, the state capital, and um, it's a uh, a farm that's uh, right on the river and has some some bottomland. And um, what we do is primarily produce um, about an acre and a half of mixed vegetables, herbs, and flowers for farmers markets, um, a small CSA, and um, a little bit for wholesale. And uh, we do all that with. Um, three draft horses. Wow, dreamy. It's pretty So, nice. um, 
I feel like I feel like now that we know it's so dreamy, I want to get a little back into the mechanics of how did you realize this love story with three horses and finding the land and finding the love and making it happen. We just launched a Kickstarter for Scott and Aubrey, who are starting a horse-powered farm up in uh, Marathon, New York. And it's just like every other week there's a new horse-powered love story. Let's hear yours. <laughs> Um, well, um, I actually am originally from New York City. Can you hear me? And uh, I grew up in Queens, uh, not far from LaGuardia Airport, and, um, I was always interested in... Horse-powered love story? Question mark? Yeah, well, it's, it's, uh, it's a love, it's one of the loves of my life, and I found the other one up here, um, but... You know, I I didn't know I wanted to work with horses, and actually, I was I was allergic as far as I knew. Um, anytime I'd get near a horse stable, I'd you know I'd have a hard time breathing and start sneezing and all those sort of stereotypical allergy symptoms. And um, uh, one day, when I was working as an educator um, on Long Island on uh, an educational farm. Um, in Yapink, Long Island, um, I sort of made the decision that uh, my passion was farming, and part of that was because of my my influence on the at-risk youth I was working with um, at this program, Project SOAR, and uh, which no longer is functioning right now, but um, that had a very profound impact on my motivation to want to grow food and grow it um, in a healthy, sustainable manner. So I found an internship through Mafka at Buckwheat Blossom Farm, which is actually about 10 minutes away from where we are, and um, they happen to have horses. And uh, I actually didn't remember they had horses until Jeff, the co-owner, said, one day, well, we're going to go and twitch some wood with, with the horses. Are you ready? And uh, I obviously wasn't, and uh, it got, but, you know, the bug bit me, and uh, I haven't looked back since. And at the same time, I met Kate at a CSA fair and sort of uh, storybook farmer love story, I guess, and, um, and haven't looked back since then, too. Destiny has you in its soft hands. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, so this is kind of the kind of the perfect story. I mean, you're driven. You find the institution to find the connection to find the apprenticeship, and then you shuffle along through finding companionship and teammate skill set partnership, groovy land. Let's talk about the groovy land scenario in Maine overall and kind of your experience navigating land access um, sounds like successfully and, um, you know, your, your small C critique of what could be better and your big A aspirational uh, notions for how other people who are in a similar position can sashay through the, um, the land access slalom more successfully. Yes, 
slalom is definitely an appropriate term for question mark <laughs> navigating a lot of a lot of the land access um, you know we we I had done two years of apprenticeships and Kate and I began our land search and we knew we wanted to be in the area that she grew up in in Whitefield and Dresden happens to be the next town over so that fit our criteria um, and um, you know that alone we sort of that that dropped into our lap we happened to have a connection with the owners that currently own the farm that we lease and um, their father just approached us um, about leasing it and we said heck yeah and um, that that was great and um, you know through our searching for land um, there were a couple of good resources that we found Mafka has certainly been uh, an enormous research resource for us um, from the beginning um, and they provide lots of training programs as um, as do many other state agencies and um, through them we got connected with land for good which is a nonprofit that is based is basically around to help connect farmers and landowners uh, specifically in the northeast I think they're their main office is in New Hampshire, but um, we got connected with Joe Barrett, who is their main field agent, and she advised us on everything from negotiating a lease, what to look out for, what you want to try to include in your arrangement, what you definitely want to talk about, and um, just the different options you have um, legally and also just on a handshake um, in making an arrangement with with a landowner, and um, we continued to look for land as we were farming this year, and we actually found a piece of land through Maine Farmlink, and um, in nearby Richmond, which is the next town over from Dresden, and um, we actually just found out today that um, we may be closing as soon as the end of this week, but maybe next week. So um, it's a very exciting time in our in the infancy of our farm business. And, um, so you leased for one season, and now you're closing on a purchase? We are, yep. Holy moly, acceleration. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's, been a, it's been a whirlwind this year. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend everyone does it that way. <laughs> um, and part of that is we, we applied for funding or a loan through Farm Service Agency, and if people aren't familiar with that, that's you know through the USDA, and um, it's basically the lending arm of the USDA. And um, it, it was a long process. We, we had originally met with... The landowner in April, and um, you know now it's January, and we're just closing. And um, I'm not sure that that's typical of how long it might take, but it certainly um, was not what we were expecting. And um, 
but it, it kept us on our toes because we really had to look very closely at our financing and and our planning. You know, um, just, they just require a lot of um, thought and um, processing in terms of your your farm numbers, and that was really helpful for us because it really sharpened our focus. That's, a, that's such a that's such a positive spin. It's like, um, man, you guys were being very diligent. It sounds like a lot of click clicking this winter, a lot of follow up and learning legal work and minding your T's and Q's. Um, any yeah. uh, any uh, guidance on keeping the cheer high during the process, other than being in love? <laughs> um. Well, I, I guess the main thing was that we just knew that this farm property felt right. Um, it, it was there were times where we were getting discouraged, but um, it was it's hard to get too discouraged when you're sort of in the middle of harvesting and bringing things in and still going to markets. So um, it, it seemed. You know, not to make light of it, but it seemed more of an inconvenience throughout the season than anything else. And um, it, yeah, I mean, we just we're just kind of keeping our eyes on the prize, and we know it, that it's what we want to do. And it's a, it's a very big commitment, so I I don't want to um, understate uh, the fact that we're taking out a, a large amount of money for a loan and. Um, so it's it's sobering, but it's also really really exciting, and uh, you know it's something I hope that a lot of young farmers can eventually um, come to come to know in one form or the other. So you're going to get this FSA loan. And you're going to be buying this land, and you're going to be farming with horses. Can you talk a little bit about um, the kind of longer-term potential um, in Maine of continuing to sustain this invasion of new small family farms and, like, what the marketplace or limiting factors are that you see as you're thinking in that long-term due diligence way? Um, about the evolution of the regional food and farm economy, um, and especially putting yourself into the um, into the footsteps of somebody who's thinking about just exactly following in your example. Yeah. Is Maine um, full, or can people keep coming? Is the short version of that question. Uh, I think. Well, I think. People are getting the sense that Maine is full. I don't think it's full. We're certainly not growing enough of our own food, and that's probably true of most states. Um, and um, I think I think it's it, there's certain market sectors that are full. Um, my sense is that farmers' markets are saturated. Um, everyone's trying to get. Um, a, a piece of what's becoming a smaller and smaller pie, or it's the same size pie, but just more people. And um, 
places like Crown of Maine have been opening up different markets. I, I listened to the interview that you did with Leon Murata a few weeks ago, and, um, you know, I think they're certainly helping strengthen the overall food network in Maine, and um, just I think what we're doing um, personally is sort of refocusing. We're still doing two farmer's markets this year, um, but we're trying to develop more wholesale markets and um, some niches that <clears throat> that we we know that there's room for potential growth. Um, it seems like um, flowers are a big one, at least here, and and some herbs, and it seems like there's also never a, never a cease in demand for carrots, but that's probably probably applicable everywhere uh, as well. Um, so yeah, um, I, I think there's definitely room for more added value products. It seems like people just want to try lots of different different things it's it's really cool to see people really opening up their palates where um where maybe 10 15 years ago they may not may not have been trying different things um and we're also putting a lot of effort into education which is a is a big driving force behind our farm especially given my my background in education and uh, I, I think that's going to be another key in sort of opening up opportunities for getting your produce to people. And do you feel like horse having a horse horse made product has a good marketing potential? Like, do you think people come to your stand and say, "Yeah, I want to support them because they're growing with horses," and that really resonates with me? Yeah, I I think it resonates with a lot of people. Um, maybe not in the sense that they truly appreciate that it it does require a little bit more work, but some people do. I think I think the real advantage and why um, we want to use horses, besides the fact that we like them and like the pace that they sort of dictate for the farm is um, that they help you connect with the community. Um, one of the one of the most beautiful things about this past season was just how people really wanted to be with us and around the horses, specifically when we were we were making hay. Um, you know, people, all of our friends, you know, that live around here, they they all at least came once to help pitch some hay onto the wagon and help bring in hay. And um, I think by the end of the season, the hay season, we I I counted maybe close to 50 people had come to help us at one point or another with hay and. Um, and that was really cool because we could share that experience and show the results of people's efforts and in a, in a way that was really tangible. I mean, seeing these big 
green piles of sweet-smelling hay. There's there's nothing quite like it, and um, to to be able to share that with people and to see people, you know, happy to be doing it and and smiling at the end of the day, even though we're all hot and sweaty and tired, that was um, that was really great. I wouldn't. I I don't think we want to keep trying to do that because it got a little bit hectic, but um, that was a really, really cool aspect of our season, and uh, I don't think I'd trade it for anything. Well, it really sets you up to have, you know, a pretty high cycle of virtue if you're going to be managing that level of volunteership and... um, once the like fuzzy newness wears off, to just continue deserving it, it's. I can see why the moral economy, you know, grows out of this. I can see why the grange is so focused on um, an ethical discourse because, really, uh, you kind of require it. But I wanted to talk about not virtue, uh, but mentorship, and you know, you're moving in a pretty accelerated way through the process of training yourself into running a horse farm. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about horse, learning horse farming and how to access the training and um, logging with horses and winter jobs, learning how to horse stuff with logging where it's like lower stakes on the wobble of the horses, that kind of stuff? Sure. Um, yeah. Um <clears throat> I think I think there's certainly a, a romantic side to working with them, and that's that's definitely part of what what drew me into it. And um, uh, it's definitely not for everyone. Um, you've got to have a certain patience and humility that um, the horses will remind you of on a on pretty much a daily basis, and um, the the skills that you develop with them and with the equipment that you may be using with them um, really just takes time and um, repetition. So, um, and that's how they learn. And at least for me, that's the kind of person I am. I like to do things repetitively and get better at them. Um, I don't, I certainly don't expect myself to be uh, an expert with, with much until I've done it for a little while. And um, it certainly holds true with, with horsepower. And, um, you know, that being said, um, they, in some senses, they're, I think it's easier for people to connect with dogs, but they are very much like dogs in that, you know, you're constantly training them and um, they're they're also pack animals, so you need to assert yourself as the alpha in their herd. And um, they also will get kind of stir-crazy if they don't have work. And so um, a challenge that I think many horse farmers have and ourselves included still right now is um, there are just certain periods in the year that um, you don't really have much work for them. And so um, 
there's there's an element of sort of upkeep that um, that you have to be aware of with them and um, monitor their health and their their sort of general um, their general demeanor on a day to day basis so that um, you don't try to jump into doing a lot of work with them and have the expectation that they'll just be able to do it. They'll actually try to knock off quite a bit. And, um, and so that, that's always, always a challenge. And winter work, like logging or even just taking them out for a spin on a sleigh or a cart, is a good way to sort of just keep them in mental and physical shape and... Um, and also just to sort of round out your farm economy, if you've got a woodlot, um, you can harvest your own firewood. And if you've got some decent trees on there for saw logs, um, you could even sell some for, for pretty high value um, to a local mill or have them milled yourself, which is um, something that we're planning on doing for future building projects. And also, of course, there's the wonderful value of reorienting ourselves to the forest and the forest landscape and being in touch with the whole landscape ecology. Um, I've been really struck by um, the land configuration of some of the really historic homesteads and in researching some of the programs available for restoring barns and kind of young, we're doing like pre-work on the Greenhorn's Guide to Historic Preservation. So I've been reading up on um, historic barn renovation tips and grant programs and stuff. And first of all, that organic farmers are the highest um, concentration of users of historic barns and also just recognizing the incredibly intimate relationship between the barn and the flow of the air and the corridors of trees that bring the, the air, you know, for instance, in the south, bringing the cool air up from the river into the barnyard, um, which is apparently called the Venturi effect. Hmm. Um, and I just wonder what your, if you also experience um, a kind of older than now feeling when you're interacting not just with the planted fields, but also with the wild, self-willed land um, that surround the fields. Yeah. Um, that's you can't just another, say yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's another, it's another aspect of, of horse farming that, that really attracts me, and, and maybe this speaks to uh, what you were mentioning at the beginning, um, of it seems like there are a lot of um, newer horse farmers coming about, and yeah, you know, I, I think it speaks a little bit to the the ethic that we're all sort of trying to reach in terms of being holistic stewards and um, you know being self sufficient, but also depending on on your neighbors and and. Um, the horses certainly, um, you know, they slow you down in a good way, and 
you know, they force you to look at details that that um, you you may otherwise miss um, because they're m- much more aware of their surroundings than than you are, just because they, I don't know, they have very good hearing and pretty good eyesight, and they're they're very sensitive. So um, it's something that that you you learn to pay attention to what they're paying attention to, and um, you you definitely um, catch a lot more, and it also just lends itself to um, yeah, just to being being uh, more in in rhythm with nature. And I know it's something that we're all trying to accomplish as as we. Uh, embark on these endeavors and and farming and food-related projects. It's all sort of this one holistic, interconnected web, and uh, that's uh, a particular aspect of horse farming that that really appeals to me, and I'm I'm sure that I speak for a lot of other horse farmers when I say that. So what are the upcoming winter events where horse farmers can meet, greet, and cheer each other on. Oh, um, it's uh, there's still sort of few and far between, but um, a few good resources. <clears throat> um, one one that I use a lot in particular is uh, DAPnet, which is uh, it's a website primarily, but it's it's a nonprofit um, devoted to draft animal power. DAP, DAP stands for Draft Animal Power Network, um, and they have an online forum for for those who may have more questions about draft animals and various machinery related to um, draft animals on the farm or forest. And um, they have um, a yearly gathering, um, usually late September, early October, and uh, their, their events are based in the Northeast primarily. And um, so that's a good resource to get in touch with other Teamsters and um, learn more. Um, the Small Farmers Journal is another good resource, um, which I'm sure many of your listeners are um, aware of. And... Um, I'm also a member of the Mafka Low Impact uh, Forestry Steering Committee, and so um, we hold um, workshops where you can you can learn to drive a horse or a team of oxen in the woods, um, and it's a, a four-day program where eventually you get to take the lines and and twitch some logs. Um, with the help of uh, a teamster and their animal, and um, the the class sizes are usually pretty small. The the teacher to student ratio is around you know two to one or three to one, depending on how many people we have, and and that happens every year uh, the third third week of November, and um, oftentimes they're follow up workshops. Um, We'll be doing one at um, in Wiscasset in February. So 
So um, that's another resource, and and I'm you know if, if you want, I can share my contact information. People wanted to ask questions or get in touch with people. Yeah, yeah, can, please do. Yeah. Um, so our website is um, tendersoulsfarm.com, and the the souls is souls like the sole of your foot. S O L E S. And um, we've got our contact information on there. And so um, anyone can shoot an email or, or give a call, and uh, we'd be happy to answer any questions if, if people have any. Well, and I'm just thinking ahead to this summer and main sale freight, and um, we're now in preparation working with the rural. Academy Theater, which is a horse-powered puppet show, and laying out the course of events for Maine Sail Freight and just the dreamy, dreamy, imaginal logistics of bringing produce to the seashore by horsepower and then shipping it down to Boston by sail power, and the performance of um, a solar and wind-powered economy, even... um, even if it's not going to be moving the majority of the calories, just to put that into the repertoire of possibility is truly thrilling. So anyway, yeah. I hope we get to talk about that more. That would be, I think that would be a much needed addition into our transportation infrastructure for sure. So the Mosca Spring Conference is in April. That's coming up for Maine people. And you can learn more at Lend for Good and FarmLink, Maine FarmLink. They've all got very good time of year to do the click-click homework for making your due diligence, farm search, farm land access pep talk time. Um, and, of course, New Year's resolutions. Uh, I want to make a couple of announcements of Greenhorn stuff that's coming up. Um, which is a lot, actually. Greenhorns continues on Grange Future Tour, where we're going to be in Nevada City and in YOLO for Seed Swap, um, joined by lead attorney Neil Thapar from the Sustainable Sustainable Economies Law Center, who are working on the Seed Rights Legalized Seed.org campaign to petition the USDA to allow, um, to reinterpret the 2004 seed law, which um, has been invoked in the closure of a few seed libraries now across the United States, um, and really is a misunderstanding about how um, the role to be played by the USDA in citizen exchange of food plants. So there's going to be a lot of discourse there. On that, that's January 25th. This coming weekend is January 11th and 12th in Nevada City. Um, and then we're going to be at Eco Farm with a beginning farmer mixer. We'll be in San Francisco January 14th um, to talk about open source and open Internet um, and comparing the populist uh, success of the Grange movement in achieving rural Rural free mail delivery. Um, every time that you're on the phone in the rural area and you lose your cell phone reception, you can just 
say with me, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. We have a telecom monopoly. And that often also is less stressful for the other party so that they understand that just because you're geographically marginalized by technology doesn't mean that you're not fully in sync with the front of the movement um, and plugging your fingers into a far more powerful uh, ecological interface than keyboard keys and high-speed city Wi-Fi. Um, golly, I just went on a ramble. January, so January Green Future Tour, it continues. Um, February is Greenhorns are going to Moses. We're going to the Catholic Worker Gathering um, in Wisconsin. And then Green Future Tour continues down in San Luis Obispo, um, Central uh, Southern California, Ojai, a whole bunch of events in Ojai, at the Ojai Grange, in collaboration with some wonderful uh, goddesses down here. As you know, the Grange gets started with 13 people, and the first three have to be, there have to be three women. Um, the women are Pomona, Ceres, and Flora, who represent the tree fruit, the grain, and the flowers which is very powerful, good organizing tactics for almost anything you need done. Starting with three women is a, a powerful start. Uh, also, I have to remind everybody that um, we'll be doing a series of screenings at the Brower Center in Berkeley on land transition, screening a movie called Hannah Ranch about a ranch family in Colorado, and Brookford Almanac about a farm family in New Hampshire. And the almanac is out, and we're sending out our e-blast um, to announce it to everyone to make sure that you toddle on down to your local feed store, cafe, bookshop, wherever the local mom-and-pop business that you like to visit is in your place. We'd love to be distributing our books um, through a collegial network to them. And we're also happy to be partnered with Chelsea Green to distribute the almanac into the normal bookstores of America uh, more broadly. But there's 108 essayists um, in the New Farmer's Almanac, and it's got a great vein of history, the kind of alternative history of the Farm Bureau uh, sprinkled throughout. So that's enough rambling of Greenhorn's news. And thank you. Thank you for being there. Do you have any announcements you want to make in the last many seconds? No, I think I'm all set. You're all set. Well, happy Happy New Year to you, Rich, and to your love and to your ponies um, and to the great state of Maine. I look forward so much to um, coming to see your operation someday. We'd be glad to have you. Thanks a lot, Severin. Have a happy New Year. Bye-bye, everyone. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.